Hello and welcome to a new podcast with me, Johan Trockmeer, and my colleague Victor Sonebeck on a new Nordea on your mind topic. We have just released a new Nordea on your mind report with the title Industry 4.0, which kind of sounds like an iPhone or a Windows update, uh, but that's not at all what this is about. It's, it's about industrial revolutions, and the term Industry 4.0 uh, is, is actually one uh, that the Germans came up with about 10 years ago, um, which was a way to try to describe the upcoming fourth big industrial revolution uh, and was an initiative from the German government to try and encourage and, and help implement new cutting-edge technologies which would allow Industry 4.0 to, to actually uh, take place, to be implemented. But, uh, Victor, this, this is kind of a combination of history and macroeconomics and technology, but talking about a fourth industrial revolution or, or, or industry 4.0, what are the revolutions number one, two and three? I, uh, I guess it's a pretty natural way to start, right? With uh, going through the background here and, and uh, to try to place this in a, in a historical context. And, and I think if we remember back to the to our school years, um, we've heard about the the big revolutions uh, over over the last uh, three to uh, to four centuries. Uh, and uh, just as a as a small comment on on each of them, the the first one, uh, so the first industrial revolution, um, was mostly related to steam power. Um, so, so we're talking about steam power for for pretty much everything from agriculture, uh, but also to uh, to shipping. Um, in effect, making uh, making shipping times more predictable, for example, and 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 leading to improvements in industries uh, worldwide. And if we talk about the second industrial revolution, this has more to do with um, electric power and 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 electrical power making businesses or, or enabling businesses to being able to set up production lines, to being able to set up more efficient workshops, due to this benefit of of uh, having access to. Uh, to electricity and going into the third industrial revolution i guess we're getting closer to what we might call uh, called the the fourth industrial revolution which has to do with uh, with uh, um, electronics which has to do with uh, further development in in technology when it comes to computing for example and when it comes to to this or, or these tools enabling us um, to even further uh, improve uh, our, our efficiency in business and and, and uh, at the same time uh, as well making better analysis available uh, in, in terms of, of uh, computing. And if we take half a step from, from industry 3.0 to industry 4.0, you might say that there are a lot of similarities in, in the fact that it's it's a lot about connectivity, it's a lot about data, it's a lot about, about um, computing in general. And in this sense, I guess you could ask the question of, first of all, what is industry 4.0 specifically? And then is it an evolution of, of industry 3.0 or is it a revolution in terms of, of um, massive technological improvement in, in new ways that we haven't seen before? That's a very, very good question. And the answer might be that it could actually be something else altogether, uh, or it could be a bit of both, both evolution and, and revolution. Uh, I think one good way to start is, is to just ask oneself how major, how significant 
will industry 4.0 be? And, and to our mind, uh, we would expect it to be at least of a similar magnitude as the amount of productivity improvement that was released by the previous three industrial revolutions. This is going to be every bit as big, if not bigger, than, than, than the earlier three. But one big difference, if you compare Industry 4.0 with, with the previous three industrial revolutions, is probably going to be that Industry 4.0 will be absolutely, to some extent, about further optimizing and making more efficient industrial manufacturing and provision of services. But much of it will probably be about business model innovation, not, not only improving production, manufacturing, but, but also changing and, and probably vastly improving the way you conduct your business. And, and the big driver of all this, what's making all this possible, what, what's making these new technologies for, for that further upside becoming available uh, possible is, is the internet internet connectivity, with people being connected to the internet and with machines being connected to the internet, what we usually call the internet of things. And, and, and looking at a way of trying to describe the difference between today's phase that we are still in, which we could call Industry 3.0, and the potential Industry 4.0 of tomorrow, is that typically, if we simplify a bit, the way we are optimizing industrial manufacturing today is that computers, electronics are used to program machines to make sure that we have an optimal efficiency in plant production. So before we start producing a batch of whatever product in a factory, we put in the settings using our computers to make sure that all machines are used as much as efficiently as, 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 as well as possible to make sure that we have a situation where we squeeze the most out of the production capacity that we have. Industry 4.0, instead, if we try to simplify a bit again, means that we have machines used in production which are connected, which are all online. And those machines are able to make real-time independent decisions where they have technologies like artificial intelligence and they can make adaptions to current market conditions based on their own sophisticated analysis of data. So you don't have a situation where engineers pre-plan a production batch for a day or two or a week or whatever, and then you run according to that set of settings. But instead, the machines continuously adapt to what is being ordered, what do our end customers ask for, and how should we supply it based on what is the cost of materials, what production capacity is available, is all machinery used in the production functioning, what's the cost of production in our, our different locations where we can produce, etc. etc. So, so it's a much more sophisticated setup where it's the intelligence dimension that gives most of the further optimization. Could you describe it as a, a feedback loop within, uh, within production, for example? Absolutely. Where, where you have this kind of real-time interconnectivity and, and as you say, that, that not only humans but, but machines in this case are able to make decisions, if you can call it that, uh, real-time rather than... I think that's a good... At a slower pace. For sure, that's a good way to describe it. And, and uh, it, it, it's, it, it's where this artificial intelligence 
aspect of it comes in that that the machines are able to make decisions on on their own so that feedback loop becomes much more sophisticated than engineers pre-programming industrial processes learning from previous experiences and then adding that into considerations when programming the next batch but but another important thing of course is that industry 4.0 coming back to your question about if it's an evolution or if it's a revolution it, it needs to be revolutionary because pre- we have seen a pretty dramatic development when it comes to productivity growth in the advanced economies, right? Yeah. Um, and and uh, it's a really interesting topic when you look at, at productivity. Because, of course, one way of measuring the, the impact of, of these different, different technical or technological revolutions, so the first or the second or the third, or in this case, the fourth industrial revolution, uh, one way is to look at what has happened to uh, to productivity, and if we go go back uh, a really long time, um, typically what you see uh, when it comes to technological advancements is a a boost in productivity as it gets adopted. But of course, once it has reached a type of of maturity, if you will, this growth starts to become become less and less and and, and a smaller or, or less important factor in terms of overall economic growth. So, so when steam power was already readily available and used in many types of industries, of course, the, the extra benefit of steam power started to become limited. And, and using this logic long term, uh, what we see now is a period of, of uh, historically low productivity growth. Uh, and at least we think that that might be an indicator of this third industrial revolution having reached, uh, maybe not its its utmost peak, but having reached uh, a level of maturity, which makes makes uh, a new industrial revolution necessary in order for, for productivity to, uh, to pick up. So, so just as an example, if we look at, at developed economies, uh, in this case the, the G7, we've seen an, a productivity growth um, of around 2.2% from 1970 to, to 2010, I think. And then from 2010 and onwards, uh, this figure has been 0.8%, so, so less than half um, the productivity growth that we've we've seen before. Um, and at the same time, of course, this... Um, productivity growth is a, a significant driver uh, when it comes to GDP growth uh, in, in, in economies. And, and with this shift, we have seen a shift in what is driving, uh, what is driving economic growth. So, so from a period of around uh, more than 50 years, economic growth has, to a large extent, been driven by increased uh, productivity. Um, but over the last 10 or so years, uh, this has not been the case. And the main driver has instead been uh, falling unemployment. So, so people working more, um, which has driven GDP growth rather than, than uh, productivity. So, so um, dollars per hour worked uh, having increased. That's really interesting because I'm thinking this is not really something that's widely known and discussed, right? Because if, 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 if the economy or the economies in the G7 have grown, that's fine, and you should be happy. And and then maybe there hasn't been as much reason to scrutinize that there hasn't been as much of a growth contribution from productivity growth. But if we have seen a decade of employment falling in the G7, there is perhaps not so much more growth potential from that. If employment, at least before the COVID-19 pandemic broke loose, 
was at a historical low level. Exactly. And this is, I mean, what we've looked at here is just the simple relationship between total hours worked and productivity. And the fact that if you multiply those together, you get GDP growth. And what has happened is that you've had low productivity growth and you've had falling unemployment, which means an increase in the number of hours worked. And as you say right now, or at least pre, uh, pre-COVID, we were at levels um, that are at historical lows, uh, extremely low unemployment figures. And what we've typically seen uh, over history is that this, this should correlate with an increase in productivity. So a low unemployment should lead to, to higher productivity growth. And, and, and one way of thinking about this is, is the simple fact that if there is, is low unemployment, you, you, you could call it a shortage of workers, then for a business, for a company, um, not being able to, to hire more workers as easily or, or not being able to, to substitute workers due to unemployment rates being low, um, the, uh, the prospect of, in, of investing into uh, efficiency or into productivity, that becomes, becomes better. So this is, of course, a relationship between should we hire more people or should we make our existing workforce uh, more productive? And the lower the unemployment rate, the higher the benefits, of course, of, of making, making the workforce more productive um, is. So, so with that as, as a kind of starting point, just looking at it, at it through the macroeconomic lens, um, the, the outlook for, for productivity growth should be, uh, be quite good. So for, for a productivity pickup. And, and just to, to try to, to put a number on this, what do we mean when we say low productivity growth uh, during these last 10 years? What has what, what that actually meant? Uh, and if we compare what GDP, uh, GDP growth would have been in, in the G7 nations, if productivity hadn't stalled, but instead had had kept uh, kept up to its its long-term trend, um, then the G7 economies economies would be some two trillion dollars uh, bigger today uh, than they actually are. That's a lot, and 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 it's 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 actually staggering because that would be unrelated to the business cycle, right? Whether the economy is growing or not on an underlying basis. If we had maintained the historical strong productivity trend, that would have been an additional two trillion dollars of GDP in the G seven. Exactly, yeah, and it's not not only um, kind of um, maintaining a high level of productivity growth, but, but if if you if you look at the data, it's quite clear that the productivity growth that we we've had the last ten years, it's not only low, it's it's extremely low. So comparing it to its long-term trend, um, it, it's, it's deviating much more than it has ever before. And how low is extremely so low? Is, if you put numbers on it, Victor, what, what, what has it been and what, what did it used to be? So, so one way of measuring this, as I mentioned before, productivity, we measure that in, in US dollars per hour worked. And, and looking at the long-term trend, um, comparing that to actual productivity growth, they, they follow each other quite well. So, so one way of comparing this that we have looked at is um, what is the productivity, so, so dollars per hour worked, um, compared to, to uh, what is the productivity uh, long-term trend-wise. 
and the most it has ever deviated from its trend, um, going back to the 1970s, I think is something like $1.5 dollars. Um, so, so the actual productivity versus trend productivity. But right now it's somewhere along the lines of $3 below where, where it should be, which might not sound like that much, but if you consider, if you consider that, that, um, that the historical deviation has been less than half um, over, over a 40 year or a 50 year time period, what we're seeing now is, is quite extraordinary. And of course, connects back to the fact that we've had, had this uh, falling unemployment uh, for, for so long. Right. And looking at growth potential, you mentioned that, that, that there's $2 trillion less of GDP in the G7. But if, if, if Industry 4.0 materializes and starts driving productivity, how, how much could it impact GDP growth? And this is where it gets really interesting, because if we look at how productivity has grown historically, um, what would be needed going forward to return back to this to this trend would actually be a lower productivity growth um, than, than what we've seen historically. So instead of this 2.2% per, per year that we've seen, um, this would require some 1.5 or 1.6% growth over a 10-year time period to reach back to to historical uh, norms, if you will, in, in terms of productivity. And this would directly translate into a contribution to GDP growth coming from productivity of around 1.5%. So, so this contribution is currently 0.8% over the last 10 years. And, and boosting this, and, and one way would be, of course, the the, the increased adoption of, of Industry 4.0, at least uh, as we were arguing. Um, but this would contribute between 1% and 2% um, percentage points to, to GDP growth. So say for a coming decade from now, Industry 4.0 could potentially add 1.5 percentage points to annual GDP growth. For sure, definitely. That's huge. Uh, and uh, again, looking at the starting point with low unemployment rate, which typically means a pickup in productivity, and the fact that we have this, this kind of behemoth of, of possibility or, or behemoth of a revolution in terms of Industry 4.0, there, there are a lot of possibilities here um, when it comes to, to, to a pickup in productivity. And you, you talked a bit about, about kind of the difference between technological um, revolution or evolution and, and business models changing. And, and I guess one way of looking at it is that we already have the technological capabilities for what we call Industry 4.0, but we might not yet have taken the full advantage of it. So that would be more in terms of, of business models changing. And, and if you have any examples or want to talk about the dynamics here and, and what we see is happening and could be happening as a result of Industry 4.0. That's a good point, because again, the, the, the most probably, we believe, important feature of Industry 4.0 will be business model innovation, rather than only further refinement of, of, of actual production, industrial manufacturing activity. And, and, and one way to look at this is that if we just compare different types of business models and, 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 and we do this in a very simplified way, I think you could describe it as the traditional business model for a manufacturing business is, is a buy-own-operate model. Uh, you, 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 you buy a machine that you use in your business for something, 
when you have bought it from the manufacturer, you own it, and then you operate it. And then how much or how little you use that machine in your business, that's your problem because you are the owner. And if you have bad times with not so much demand from your customers, it's probably going to stand still more of the time. And that costs money because all the fixed costs from owning the machine are still there and, and you have to absorb that. So it's, it's your responsibility to make the maximum and best use of it. And for the supplier who you buy the machine from, one disadvantage of this model is that you can have a pretty lumpy order profile. Maybe I as a customer buy a machine and then perhaps it could take two, three, four years before I go back and buy another one, depending on how my business has developed and, and, and what needs I have. And then the machine maker I bought it from needs to, of course, stay busy with selling machines to someone else in the meantime. And, and, and that demand can swing up and down. A, a, a natural evolutionary step has been, which has happened a long time ago, um, to, to see a shift from these bio and operate business models to instead subscription-based business models, where I, as a user, if I need a machine, for example, to, to, to do business, uh, I, I, I can, instead of buying and owning that machine, actually subscribe to having the machine, or for that matter, a service available. And that is a more asset-like business model. I don't need to own machines uh, to the same degree that I, that I did before under the old model. It also means that if I subscribe to have access to a machine that I can use, I have a fixed monthly cost typically for, for, for that access. So I know what my costs are going to be for as long as I use that machine under my subscription. And, and the machine supplier, in turn, has recurring revenues because the machine supplier will every month receive my subscription payment for having access to uh, that particular machine. So, so that's, that's a different model, but that's not really Industry 4.0, because under Industry 4.0, we think that we are going to see a lot of the next evolutionary step for business models, which is a move even further away from bio and operate to what we call usage-based business models. And they work in the way that I only pay for my actual use of a machine. So I don't enter into a subscription contract where I might be tied up for a long time period and I need to pay my monthly charges to have access to what I subscribe to. But I actually have access to the machine or the service that I want to use. And whenever I use it, I get charged for the time and maybe the wear and tear distance traveled, time spent, whatever, uh, that I had access. But I don't pay anything when I don't use it. So I don't need to invest in buying something that I own. I don't need to enter into a contract where I'm locked up into having a fixed cost that I pay month after month after month. And then you might ask, what does the vendor, the supplier of the machine or the service that I subscribe to access to, what does the vendor get out of all this? Well, the vendor gets my usage data. The vendor sees through the data, since this is all connected online, right? What I'm doing with the service or with the machine. And that data can be extremely valuable because the more the vendor knows about how I use what I subscribe to, the better the vendor understands my needs. And the vendor can, of course, use this data to, to show me customized offers that I am likely to be seeing a very high willingness to pay for since the offers that I might get shown are ones which have been tailored to what they have seen my usage to be like. 
and, and that is a potential win-win uh, since, since the data is a completely new dimension that can be used by, by the supplier. And to be a bit concrete, if, if you want to, rather than just talking about industrial context, if you, if you want to take one example out of many, to just something that you, know, you and I and, and, and probably most others might see in our everyday lives, take Spotify. I am old enough to have been part of when there was a, when I was a kid when there was a, a, a changeover from vinyl records to compact discs, and I remember back in those days that you might pay twenty euros for a compact disc with music on it. It might have ten songs, and and really, you know, ultimately you might be listening to two or three of those songs. That those are, those are the ones you want to to play again and again. That that's not very efficient, right? You carry around the disc and and and. 20 or 30% of the content on it is what you're really interested in, but you have to pay full price for that actual piece of kit. And, and today, instead, if you subscribe to Spotify, which I do, I have a fixed monthly cost where I have availability to listen to whenever I like through whichever device I choose to most of the world's music catalog, which is streamed. And I guess in Spotify's case, what you mentioned with the data and then data analysis and being able to tailor tailor make um, your experience, of course, helps their business model a lot. Just looking at at music streaming, for example, one of the key key sources of revenues, except for the subscriptions themselves, that that's advertisement. And and looking back or even currently at at radio advertisement, for example, that's the same type of ad, uh, advert uh, or advertisement for everyone who's tuning in to the same channel. But taking a company such as, as Spotify, what they're able to do since they have this data, since, since they know who you are and have your profile, is to tailor make your uh, advertisements as well. So what would you want be most likely to, to buy? What should we play him uh, in terms of advertisement? And that, that of course, increases the value of, of, of the, the commercials and that, they, that they provide you with. Um, so in one way, they, they increase efficiency, but also, of course, a possibility here with, with the business models. Very well put. And, and, and this, of course, is why they can target advertising for um, Hammarby football kit to you, looking <laughs> at the pattern of listening that you have on your Spotify subscription, right? So, so it, it, it all makes sense. It, 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 it's... it's a much better potential hit rate for advertisers in being able to find what you are genuinely interested in once you have this data that you can base the targeted advertising on. And I think if we if we look at more kind of physical businesses, so so say a machine or, or a car or, or yeah. whatever that may need servicing, if you move from this, this buy, own and operate model and move into a more into this this other type of business model where you you pay for usage for example what you're in essence doing is is as a vendor you're you're kind of lengthening your relationship with the client because it's it's not just a one time transaction and then they take full ownership and do whatever they want with the product it's it's a continuous transaction where you as the vendor or as the service provider also have the opportunity then to to kind of control the life cycle of the product. So maintenance and, and servicing and, and all of that, that that goes into owning uh, owning a product. Absolutely true. Uh, a customer buying a machine and then staying away for three years gives you one data point when you've sold the machine and that's it. And then instead seeing, knowing, understanding what the customer does with the machine every single day is of course a completely different data flow. 
But I think also to try and, and be clear and, and to offer an example where most of us, and I think most listeners will be able to feel familiar with, with the dynamic, is to take the example of cars, as you mentioned. And, and I think if, if you want to highlight one, which we also do in the report, uh, example that works pretty well as an illustration, it, it is the whole concept of usage-based business models for cars. And, 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 and it's pretty intuitive, actually, if you think about it. Um, I mean, you might not own a car, Victor, but many people do. Uh, in the Nordic region, there are about 13 million cars and we are 27 million people. So there's lots of them out there and, and most of them are, are privately owned. And, and, and looking at owning a car compared with the new concept of car sharing, which is still pretty small, looking at how many vehicles this is compared to the 13 million which exist in the Nordic region, but which is growing extremely fast and in popularity, uh, I think it's good to make that comparison. Looking at car ownership, some important features of owning a car are that it's extremely expensive. It's actually typically, on average, roughly a third of a person's disposable income after tax that's spent on owning the car. Part of that is depreciation, which many people don't really associate with being a cost, but, but it's there. And, and, and from an economical point of view, you have to look at it as depreciation happening all the time. As long as you own a car, it will fall in value and you will take that cost. Even if you don't pay every month, once you get rid of the car, if you sell it, you will see that the value has decreased. So, so it's expensive. And the other issue, of course, worth mentioning is that the costs are, to a very great degree, about three quarters of the costs are actually fixed. So, so irrespective of how much or how little you drive your car, the costs are going to be there. Other act uh, important features are that the uptime is extremely low. Uh, most privately owned cars stand still 95% of the time. So the utilization rate is terrible, which is a massive waste of resource. And the capacity utilization is poor as well. The average occupancy of a, of a private car is one and a half passengers. And most cars can carry five or more. Comparing with the alternative of sharing, where you instead subscribe to access to a car based on usage, that has a very high utilization rate because then it's not only you who's entitled to use a car, everybody who is a member, a registered user can, when the car is available, use it and pay for it. It's very convenient because the cars are located, you find them and, and then you make use of them when they're available and where you happen to be and where you need them. And, and Increasing the efficiency in, in, in getting a better usage of these shared cars, of course, means that you don't need as many vehicles in society, which means that you will have better sustainability from lower congestion and you will also address issues like a shortage of parking in, in, in urban areas. And this is a very important aspect, affordability, because it's a huge difference to actually, whether you understand it or not, spend on average around a third of your disposable income on owning a car and instead just paying for using a car when you use it and paying zero at all other times. So it's a striking contrast, as you can tell. And the newest car sharing platforms are smart, smartphone app based. So you use your phone to find the car, check its availability. You have pre-registered as a user, showing that you have a driver's license, you're not a convicted felon. Uh, and you have a payment mechanism installed in the app, meaning that you then can use your phone to open the car, to start the car, and, and, and then to end the session when you're done and get charged. So it, 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 it's, I think, a very good illustration of 
what kind of upside Industry 4.0 could offer. Because this, this concept of Industry 4.0, of course, is not exclusive for, for private passenger cars. But if you take the same kind of thinking, the same kind of approach, and, appro- and, and, and apply it to industrial machinery, well, there you go. This is how that upside is going to materialize, how it's going to work. And on that topic, whether we're talking about usage-based business models, as you said, for for us as individuals, for example, car sharing, or or, or if it's music streaming or whatever it is, or if we're talking about the industrial applications of, of renting a machine and paying as you go, for example, it's important that that one realizes and 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 sees the potential in that this needs all of the logistics related to not only data storage and data transfer so so the connectivity parts but but of course also the 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 payment solutions right because if you if you take for example my monthly subscription to to spotify sure that's more the old school kind of one month uh, payment Um, but on the other hand these uh, these uh, ride sharing models where you kind of log on to the car if you say (laughs) if you will and you pay pay um as you've driven your your distance, your your bank account gets charged. All of this, of course, needs to happen at a high pace. It needs to be to be measured correctly, of course. And and apart from 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 the the efficiencies created in the system through everything being connected and everything being being as optimized as it can be. Uh, you of course also have the benefit of of the kind of fairness in, in knowing that you pay for exactly what you're using, and and uh, turning toward the, the kind of industrial application of this would of course lead to the same benefits that you mentioned in in terms of better measurement, better efficiency, and and uh, of course a higher degree of automation and and uh, kind of system independence, uh, meaning that people don't need to be as involved. Uh, on a day-to-day basis in, in these kind of uh, more more autonomous systems. Exactly. It, it, it's, it's meant to be done more automatically and, and, and users not having to worry about that particular functionality aspect. It, it's supposed to just work. And, and I guess the good news from what you mentioned, Victor, is that at least for us working for a bank, that, that there is a role to play for banks here as well because payments is a regulated activity. Uh, banks are already involved in the area in a way in in being payment service providers for for example online based subscription business models um and and uh, uh, then it's up to the banks of course to ensure that solutions are developed to be able to be relevant in these new and often technologically more sophisticated platforms And here at Nordea, we have a pilot project where we are developing a contract engine uh, and, 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 and virtual payments functionality to be mirrored in actual bank accounts, which is meant to be used for industrial contexts uh, in, in, in machine-to-machine payments, uh, which is an area where Nordea wants to have relevance and, and, and be active uh, in uh, what lies ahead, which will presumably and hopefully, I think, Victor, in the coming years be under Industry 4.0, right? I guess I guess one way of summarizing is uh, exciting times ahead. A lot of things happening and, and a lot of possibilities in, in, in this space. Of course, not only for ourselves, but, but, but for society as a whole. Most definitely. Look forward to that. 
We will be back with new topics. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, we want to thank you all for joining us and listening. Um, see you next time.